This is Wayne Jurnell, editor of Theory and Research and Social Education, and this episode of Visions of Education features a TRSC published author. Enjoy. You're listening to Visions of Education, a podcast where we take a look at big ideas in education from different perspectives. Hi, I'm Michael Milton, a high school teacher from Massachusetts. And I'm Dan Kretka, an education professor in Texas. We're here to help bridge the gap between educators in the K-12 and those professors in higher ed. We hope this podcast will help bring those fuzzy ideas in education into focus. Dan, I, I like to say that I, I try to keep my pulse on the beat of education, although it's very difficult because it is kind of all over the place, a little bit scattershot yeah. of points. But you're hearing a lot about computational thinking in a lot of circles. People are talking about this. Have you seen any computational thinking in social studies? Yeah. First, I, I want to recognize that it is true. People always say Michael knows what's going on, right? Like he's actually, up to date, yeah. right? Like all the social studies trends. Who do you go to? There's a grapevine and I hear things through it. Right. Right. So yeah, I hear people, you walk through the streets, you walk through the social studies hallways, people are talking com- computational thinking, right? Yeah. And some people saying. say, some people say, you know, we haven't done a lot of computational thinking in social studies, but I distinctly remember as a kid yeah. watching the documentary Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, which I thought was a really good example of computational thinking, right? So to be able to use uh, computer devices to go back in time to get right. historical figures, I think I think that's what people are talking about when they talk about computational thinking. Is that really it? Because the, the here's the thing, I, even though I've heard about people talking about it, Dan, I don't actually know what it is. And so you're telling me this is about time traveling. Maybe, I don't know, maybe it's more like Terminator 2, where you're thinking like a computer. So maybe oh. we're trying to be more like, you know, the the Terminator, right? The hasta la vista. So it's kind of like the slightly robotic way of, of talking. Is that, maybe that's what we're doing a little bit. So you're thinking, I so guess- So we, we want to be hell. Yeah, well, because in, in 2001 Space Odyssey, the computer's oh. almost more humanistic than the people in that, right? So- Who's I was talking say, about famed actor Hal Holbrook, uh, who does most. Was, no, but yeah, you're right. That, that was I was real. talking about Hal Nine Thousand. So we yeah, yeah. So this is the problem with humans. We're inefficient. What? Where? What are we even talking about? Computational thinking and how I've heard about it. Yeah, I think that would. It, does that involve efficiency? I'm assuming so because I guess computers are very efficient, and if they're not, they're not good computers. Yeah, but then they end up like killing the world sometimes, right? That's like the theme. That's of a lot of my always fear. And people, yeah. my students think it's funny because I, whenever I ask Siri or I ask my, like, I go to play a video or something, I always say please to my computer thing, but that's just in case they end up do taking over the world. I want them to know that I have manners. Right. And right. I will be yeah. there. I'll be an underling. I'll definitely do it. I think there's actually studies that show people who are like mean to Siri, like have like, you know, sociopathic tendencies or something. So it's good, Michael. I'm glad to hear you're empathetic with, oh, with absolutely. robots and our future overlords. Absolutely. With that being said, Dan, you have people for us, I'm assuming. Yeah. So the problem is, is we probably sound like a lot of social studies educators when talking about computational thinking, making it up as we go. But we probably should bring in some real experts on the topic who are thinking about what computational thinking can look like in social studies. What do you have for us today? We do. So we have not one, not two, but three guests we're going to bring in that we are excited to have here. And so we would like to welcome in Megan Manfra, Tom Hammond, and Robert Coven. Welcome. Thank you. Hey, guys. 
So can you all tell us a little bit more about yourselves as humans, not as computers? Yeah, I love that. Um, thanks for the question. So I'm Megan Manfra. I'm a professor here in Raleigh, North Carolina at NC State University. And when I was a graduate student at UNC, I met Tom Hammond, who was a grad student at UVA. And we've been working together on research around, com com actually not computational thinking, but digital technology in the mm -hmm. social studies since time. And so I'll let him introduce himself. Sure. Uh, thank you, Megan. So Tom Hammonds, and I taught middle school and high school social studies for 10 years, and then ended up very randomly in a doctoral program, and then sort of got sweet-talked into uh, applying to uh, academia. Then along the way, I met Megan, and we st were started working on some common projects and just always had a lot of fun working together, very compatible uh, as writers. And so it's been shockingly 15 years where off and on uh, we've been working on projects together. Tom, I'm going to pause you right there. How did you randomly end up in a doctoral program? Like, this is not something you just trip into, right? <laughs> I applied for a master's and they said, oh, no, 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 no. You want to do the doctorate? And I was like, no, I don't. And they said, yeah, see, if you do the master's, it's two years and you pay us. But if you do the doctorate, it's three years and we pay you. Oh, and it's like, okay, when you put it like that, why not? Go for it. That does, that is very random. That's a great and then story. The first article I submitted for publication was accepted with minor revisions. And I was like, oh, this is easy. Now that's, that's happened again, like exactly once in the following 15 mm -hmm. years. But, but still, I, I, the point is, Michael, I was suckered into this. <laughs> None of this is my fault. Excellent. So, and then Roberts, I met you at a, gosh, was it a NCSS conference? At one point, yes, it was. Yes, and oddly enough, you and I had been having a parallel thought about uh, about modeling for social studies. So let me throw to you. Yeah, the funny thing is, as Tom mentioned, he had to sort of. He said he was suckered in. I think it was being gently persuaded into a doctoral program by Megan. Megan mm -hmm. was actually my dissertation chief, and I've spent thirty years now teaching high school history and a variety of other courses that I would say are loosely tied to history. And part of that is because I have a background in banking, retail, and architecture. So that's kind of part of what makes the interdisciplinary or transdisciplinary nature of all this of interest to me. And mm -hmm. I'm currently teaching at Cary Academy, uh, which is where the, the research for the study was done. So again, architecture? Yes, architecture. What's going on with that? Well, the funny thing is I took a course back in college in a area that I had no thought of doing. It wasn't my minor. It wasn't my major. But I took this course called The Evolution of the American Landscape, which happened to be taught in the architecture department. And it set me on my course for my life. I ended up going from my individualized major in college to architecture, grad school, and then did architecture for a while, worked for a bank and so on and so forth, and finally got around to education, high school education. What a roundabout little story. I love it. No, little story. That's a big story. That's really fun. Yeah. And if we needed Thank to you. someone to design a building, which has a bank and retail in it <laughs> and a school, Robert's I a can, guy. I, I can tell you about one. John oh. building in Chicago. That's okay. what the original design. It was supposed to have a school and apartments and a hotel and all kinds of things. So, yeah. 
Mm-hmm. Well, that sounds wonderful. And maybe we're going to have to have you come back and tell us more about that because I have about 50 questions. So I think we just will move on algorithmically to our next question in the podcast, which is, well, actually, before we get to a question, it's a congratulations. You all published an article in Theory and Research in Social Education that was titled Assessing Computational Thinking in the Social Studies. So first, congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. So can you all tell us about this paper, which is computational thinking in the social studies, what's going on? Michael and I were obviously confused at the front of this podcast. Tell us about this project. There's actually a lot of serendipity involved in this too, that I was at a a science teacher conference, ASTE, randomly, and I was going through the posters, browsing around, and I saw a poster about teaching computational thinking in a biology class. And I thought that that's extremely random. Why, why would they be doing that? And so I looked at it and thought about it and I was like, oh, so it's not just for computer science. You could take it someplace else if you wished. So I filed that away and went about my business. And then back in, I think it was 2018, IES put out a call in which they said, guess what? Social studies is on the menu now. And so I was like, oh my gosh, I've, I've been sort of waiting around for a chance to apply for social studies funding for a long time. So what do I do? And so I you know, very hurriedly cranked up a proposal focusing on computational thinking and spatial reasoning. Now, it didn't, it didn't go anywhere. It didn't get, you make it, even make it to the panel, but it was something that I talked with Megan about and sort of put it on her radar. And so then, you know, once the dust settled from that grant proposal, she came back to me and said, hey, what, you know, tell me some more about what you're thinking with that. And so that sort of initiated a grant proposal that she put in which then led up to this uh, current uh, TRSC publication. Right. And so, and as I mentioned, kind of the long history of this work is we came of age, or I came of age in technology and education when TPAC was first sort of invented, as we all know. And so they have these concentric, this Venn diagram of technology, pedagogy, and content. And Tom and I have long written about and really believed Um, strongly in that the P, the pedagogical part of this framework is what drives technology integration. And so in part, that's why, you know, technology is not a panacea. It has not solved all the big crisis in education because how teachers choose to teach what their aims are drives the way in which they use technology and what happens for their students. So I kind of, I guess I see this work and computational thinking as part of this sort of evolution that we've gone through where we um, in the early days, we're looking at digital materials. So, you know, with the internet revolution, we were very excited about the fact that all of a sudden primary sources were digitized and available to students. That segued into using those digital primary sources to make videos or documentary films or student-created films. And then now what I see is this is just the kind of the extension of this work to a much more sophisticated level in which we have these great big data sets available for students, for users. And then the question is, how can teachers leverage that in the classroom to engage students in problem-solving inquiry in a, I guess, about bigger issues or on a grander scale? And so part of this grant Tom was mentioning is that I gathered together a group of teachers who are doing this work and Robert was one of them. And he was actually a unique case in that he had developed a course around kind of largely, I guess, in general around computational thinking, but more specifically in data analysis. And so um, that's how we came to settle on Robert's class as a unique case 
that would give us what Shulman talks about, like the vision and what's possible. So I have a question, if I can jump in here real quick. There's a lot of data out there. How, how, how do we even start? Where does social studies even start? Or where did you start in this project with thinking about what type of data that students would look at or that would make sense for social studies? I'll, I'll give one simple example, and then I want to throw to Robert on this. That, so I'm at Lehigh University, and we sit on the proud and mighty Lehigh River. And I remember at one point, one of my colleagues, a science educator, uh, said, oh, and by the way, yeah, you know, the, 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 this, the major cities in this area were all settled along the river. And so I was like, yeah, that makes sense, of course. But then I was looking at it, and I realized, wait, so the, the easternmost where the Lehigh enters the Delaware River is Easton. It settled in 1738. And then there's Bethlehem, 1741. And then there's Allentown, 1762. And I'm like, oh, they're all going upstream. That it's like this river as it flows down and comes up to the Delaware, it's like, wait. So you can almost imagine European settlement is sort of propagating upstream, you know, come, after having come upstream along the Delaware, like Philadelphia is 1683. So you come up, up the Delaware from Philadelphia, and then you get to the forks of what was called then the forks of the Delaware, where the Lehigh joins in. And it's like, they keep spreading up the Lehigh River. And I was like, huh, that's an interesting pattern. And then I was kept thinking about it. I was like, oh, and not only are they along the river and in reverse chronological order, they're also all at a confluence that, you know, where two rivers come in or a major stream system comes in. I was like, man, that, that's a really interesting pattern. Can I take this to railroads? Or I had, a, I had a previous student look at the canals, like when the Morris Canal was laid across New Jersey, he was like, well, the, the population growth in the counties along that canal just boomed, you know, just went way up relative to the uh, counties that were not immediately adjacent to that canal. So it was just sort of thinking about, man, there's some interesting patterns out there in the past, but that was just was filed in the back of my head. Until I got linked up with this framework of computational thinking. So to come back to your original question, the data sets are sort of what's in front of us already. It's not necessarily something totally new and funky. And you know, hey, let's let's go pull this you know new report from the Bureau of Labor Statistics and you know go wild on it. That a lot of it is just stuff that I've been playing with you know as a social studies teacher and a social studies teacher educator for 25 years now. But let me throw to Robert because he's the person who's probably been the most creative in the classroom in terms of uh, seeing opportunities and coming up with things. Yeah, let me just back up for one second just to sort of explain why I even got interested in this. My varied background has led me to believe that the best way of approaching any topic is doing it indirectly. So I tend to look at history from multiple angles, but also I want to do it through multiple modes of inquiry, with computational thinking being one of those modes of inquiry. And I find that there are an, um, there is such an amazing trove of uh, resources available to us in data and maps, all kinds of things, artifacts. And I want to expose students to that so that they understand what real authentic history is. That is using the raw material, the raw data to come up with historical understanding. And I think what's wonderful about that in part is, and this is sort of thinking about your introduction, the wonderful thing about human beings not being computers is that humans are really good at finding patterns and expanding on those patterns through what can be endless curiosity. And humans tend to make links and connections that a computer simply wouldn't. 
sometimes it seems rather random in the classroom, but often it works out beautifully. And with that in mind, I started looking at data that is numerical data as a resource for students to understand historical forces. And one of the first resources I came upon, and I think it's the one I use in the second project in the article, is this book of tables, economic data from England from the years 1200 through, I think it's 1750. But I only have the students looking at 1200 to 1400. And it's just, it seems probably on the surface slightly random, but it really is amazing to watch them look at and digest what is really primary material. What type of, is this from the, uh, like from the doomsday? What source is this from? It's similar to that. It's a collection done by a professor. I think he was at Oxford in the 1860s. I think it was 1863 when it was published. His last name is Rogers. I can't remember his first name. And it's a seven volume set of just economic data that he gathered from every town, every shire, every county in in England. And what's great about it is that it's a really messy data set. It's very incomplete. It's in, obviously, in old English money, and it gives the students a chance to really investigate a very difficult problem. And so what? So when they get the, the data, and I'm, I'm glad that you call it data, not data like Dan. I'm with you. But this is an ongoing discussion that Dan and I have had over the years. So when they get the data, like, what are they doing with it? Are they just trying to make sense of it? Are they trying to solve a puzzle or not a puzzle, but are they trying to like, are they just trying to make sense of it? Well, the first step of it is simply collecting it and the problems that ensue simply from collecting it. Because as I said, it's spotty data and they have to, I let them transcribe it. I'll let them create whatever spreadsheet they want to do. They use statistical software called JUMP, J-M-P, to analyze the data. And once they've looked at what that data looks like, and most of the time what they're doing is making graphic representations, graphs, essentially, linear graphs, bar graphs, that kind of thing, of the data itself. Once they're able to do that, they do begin to see patterns in the prices of labor and the prices of commodities in England from 1200 to 1400. And then the question is, now that they see the pattern, they have to then explain it. And that's the point at which they're coming up with a rule. Why is it that the prices are spiking in certain years? Why is it the prices are diving in other years? So it's a process. Like you first get into the data and kind of try to understand like what's in it, what's not in it, how was it gathered, even when was it gathered? So, you know, things you would typically do with the primary source even. And then once you've kind of like gotten comfortable with what's in front of you, then you start to say, oh, okay, so what are the patterns that I see um, within this data? What seems to be the central tendency? What might the outliers be? And then you start to say, okay, can I get a rule out of this? Is there like a general understanding that will hold up maybe not just in this data set, but in, you know, can I apply it to other matching contexts? So there's sort of a and, and this is something that evolved out of work that I was doing with a middle school teacher here in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, where one of my local collaborators, Billy Oltman from Lehigh University, came up with this you know, like data. First, you get into the data, then you come to understand the patterns that might be there, or you, you investigate those, and then you, then you try to articulate what might be a rule. 
out of that pattern. And you asked about data sources. Let me just mention, you know, we're probably all familiar with Gapminder, you know, the big data sets, visualizations, and, you know, it's chronologically organized and you can like hit play on gapminder.org. Um, so that's like a amount of data just, just right there. It's like, that's built for this kind of a thing. It's just, you know, computational thinking is a frame you can bring to it. Another data source, oddly enough, is Wikipedia. <laughs> so I'm a huge fan. Well, I shouldn't say oddly enough. What am I saying? Just like, there's so many topics where I'm like, man, is there a list of like presidents and presidential candidates and their heights? Because I want to know how tall they are. It's in Wikipedia. You know, that's uh, just, you know, seven times out of 10, when I'm thinking of something, some random like social studies thing, there's already a data set in Wikipedia that I can pick up and use. And then the third thing I would want to mention is that a lot of, a lot of my research is actually working with GIS, geographic information systems. And so those are already stocked with data, or, you know, it's, you're already pulling up data for that. And so it's, it's already right there. And then I can have students do things like look at, you know, congressional districts in Pennsylvania before they got redistricted for being in violation of the Pennsylvania state constitution. And it's like, well, why is Pittsburgh its own unitary congressional district? But then the city of Reading is split into three different districts or Allentown next door to me is split into two different districts. And they can start to see, oh, this is how packing and cracking work, you know, to make gerrymandering possible. That kind of stuff is already like preloaded. It's pre-stuffed into uh, a lot of GIS systems that I'm already working with in classrooms. So it's, it's all over the place. Or even another activity that Megan and I have uh, sort of reframed as we thought about computational thinking is the, uh, the story of Aaron. If you guys are familiar with that, like the classic, it's, it's a selection of six uh, runaway slave advertisements from the uh, Virginia Geography of Slavery database. And it's like, huh, you know what? You can put a computational thinking frame around that. So again, there's lots of data sources in lots of places that we're already using. So as I think about this, I'm thinking maybe Michael and I actually have learned something related to this because we had Tamara Schreiner on in episode 87, and she taught us a little bit about critically thinking about data visualizations as they showed up in textbooks. But I think that was a lot about interpreting them. Here, maybe what I'm getting is that computational thinking involves creating those types of uh, data visualizations, and maybe data visualizations are part of it. So can you tell us about how this worked out in, in this research that you did? What did the study look like and what did you learn from pursuing your uh, research questions? Yeah, so I think the um, first thing to clarify is Tom did a lot of the work of kind of cross-mapping what computational thinking looks like in the research literature on computational thinking and, and thinking about, well, how does that apply to the purposes of social studies? And so as a result, a lot of that work led to a heuristic, which is a three-part heuristic, which we keep mentioning, which was data, pattern, and rules. And so once we came up with that heuristic, then the notion was, can we use this heuristic in the classroom to both teach and assess students both computational thinking and historical thinking outcomes in the classroom. And so as a result of that, what we did is we worked with a practitioner as Robert and developed what we called a nested model of research where he was an action researcher. And then we really sort of overlaid a qualitative case study on top of it. So a new approach to research where we're really interested in getting the craft knowledge, the insider knowledge of the teacher this was really important for us to understand his pedagogical decision-making, 
how his interaction with students impacted his teaching strategies, and then the results for the students. So with that in mind, we worked with Robert, and he can talk more about how he designed his course around computational thinking questions and developed an iterative um, mode. Yeah, I think what what I was looking to do when I first developed the course, which was just about five years ago, I think, initially it was just to do cleometrics, just to do statistics in history. And I thought that was that was enough for students to take on. But I discovered early on that both to engage their interest and to expand the breadth of the skills they were learning, I would go beyond simple statistical analysis into these other things like even map analysis, artifact analysis. But for this project, the one that Megan and Tom are talking about, I focused on three different types of data and having them look for, again, data, pattern, and rule. And what I was looking to do was not give them the questions or the answers. That was to be their job. And I wanted it to be messy and ambiguous because that's what they will face when they're doing this outside of a classroom. So I was giving them data that is incomplete, purposefully, and I'm not giving them even the full set. Part of what their task is to do is to find additional data. So, for example, when they found the spikes in the data, uh, price spikes, in order to explain the forces behind it, they had to do some investigation into what was going on historically in England at the time. Um, so a lot of a lot of what I've been trying to do in this course, which is called Measuring the Past, is provide students with skills and conceptual frameworks um, that they can use, that they can transfer to all kinds of different disciplines that they can use in STEM, in business, whatever they're pursuing after school. Um, so it's, it's a kind of collection of both concepts and skills that I think will serve them well after their schooling. The topics that Robert was doing, like there was a material culture unit that got this frame applied to it. Uh, that was something that evolved from Megan's workshop. Again, uh, that, that actually came out of Gapminder. They have a Dollar Street uh, database with uh, lots of uh, photographs and some uh, contextual information from different families around the world and what their material circumstances are. And then there was the unit on the economics of the plague. Um, and then there was the unit on uh, politics and America's wars. And both of those were like, you know, original to him, things that, you know, I, I don't have the content background he does to come up with that stuff. And in terms of the data visualization that Tamara Schreiner does, yes, like that's definitely a part of the process as you think this through and both to sort of try to find out, okay, what might be the, the, the pattern in the data? Well, make, make, a, make a visualization, make a representation of this data. And then when it comes time to kind of propose this as, well, is this a rule that holds up elsewhere or is this a one-off? You know, again, the visualization is going to be key to sort of both think that through and communicate that to others. And to go back to the uh, the crosswalk that Megan mentions, where you know I, I worked through the the computational thinking lit as it emerged from the computer science community. That you know this, it's an idea that originates with them, obviously, and so they have a whole bunch of ideas and definitions. The favorite one that I like to mention is uh, algorithmic notions of flow control, 
And so, you know, you can just imagine rolling up on a group of social studies teachers with that. And they'll be like, I'm getting right on out of here. I, I want no part of anything of what you said that uh, that does not sound like a good time. So it was like, okay, for each of these things, translate that to social studies terms. And then does it matter? Is this something that, that connects to social studies that's meaningful? So for example, in the intro, you guys were talking about efficiency. You know, is efficiency a key part of computational thinking? And the answer is actually yes. That uh, one of the you know, characteristics or one of the principles of computational thinking coming out of the, computa- the computer science community is efficiency and performance constraints. You know, how fast can this sorting algorithm run versus that sorting algorithm? That matters a ton if you're a computer scientist. But for social studies purposes, eh, sometimes, maybe, but not really. It's not, it's not core you know, to, to what we do. And so I put that into the pile of, no, like this is not something that I want to bring into a, you know, a, a reframed computational thinking for social studies. So that didn't make the cut. And then I had to think about, you know, what is it that we, how can we arrange this for teachers? And so as we played with it, working with Robert and other folks, that's how we got into that data pattern rules kind of structure uh, that you can, you can cycle through. Um, you can almost think of it as a, like a, like a heuristic, just like you would have a heuristic for reading primary sources, right? Like you can skim C or the parts or whatever you're using. It could be, you could think of that as a heuristic for doing data intensive lessons, for social studies. It's one way to kind of structure the way that you might introduce this to students and kind of have them move in phases in a manageable way. Because otherwise, you know, you're just throwing, you know, the doomsday book or whatever, you know, what, whatever data source is, you're throwing it at them and we're like, be brilliant kids, good luck. And that usually does not end well. So one, qu- one question I have is, you know, it's always interesting to me because computer science is incredibly complex and machine learning and the things that increasingly run behind the screens and the, the networks that we use today are hard to understand. Um, and so I'm, th- I, I'm wondering if a big benefit here is that you can start to understand things. So maybe you don't do algorithmic flow control. Did I get all the words together in the right order? Yeah, all right, I did it. I'm receiving confirmation from the humans in, the, in our call. But maybe you don't understand that, but maybe you do need to understand how something like algorithmic flow control, if I'm using this correctly and understanding it, results in, for example, YouTube quickly recommending, making recommendations to people, which may not be good, right? They could be harmful. They could be recommending things based on popularity or the amount of time people watch them, which oftentimes leads to spreading conspiracy theories around the internet and things like that. So I'm, I'm, is, is there a benefit there for social studies to increasingly coming into contact with these ideas? There, there's these like, even if you're not going to learn how to do it all, you'll start to learn how to think about this stuff and, and be curious about it and be critical about it. Yeah, that I, I want to throw this back to, to Robert, but yes, sure. Through this process, you come to under, first, students have a chance to like deal with these big data sets that, you know, data is the new oil and it's, it's just so powerful and you know, we can redirect the world and shape elections and whatever else, you know, through through these algorithms. So it gives students a kind of chance to get into that space. But the the thing that I found super, super important from what Robert's students did is that after they'd worked with this a couple of times, they start they sort of turned around and, and they got a critical lens on what they were doing. And they're like, hey, wait a minute, this data set is limited, you know, like. I'm drawing conclusions, but I understand that these conclusions are flawed because the data is partial 
And, you know, it's very easy to then overgeneralize or misapply or kind of run amok with, with the conclusion that you draw. And it's sort of like a chance to kind of understand in, in a familiar context, you know, not in a, the way YouTube uses the algorithms or the way that Amazon manages your massive amounts of information or Facebook, you know, has all kinds of data that it's a way for you to kind of say, man, algorithms are going to do what they're going to do, but it's, they don't know the whole story. And the, the thinking process behind it is always incomplete. And so that's where a lot of Robert's students ended up is kind of critiquing the whole process. And I was like, man, I did not see that coming. That is awesome. That that's where I would say it's not just that, Oh, computational thinking could be important to social studies. That's where I want to turn around and say, no, no, no. Social studies could be important to computational thinking because I don't know that you get there. If you are just a computer scientist, I don't know if you get there. Sorry, a computer science student. I don't know if you get there. If you're in a science class, you will get there in a social studies class. If you, if in a social studies class, you're getting into this kind of a, a game or this kind of a, an inquiry, you will, I think chances are good, as long as it's not a one-off, chances are good that students will start to recognize the, the limitations of algorithmic thinking. Yeah, and I think one of the big critiques of the, a lot of the Silicon Valley, as they're, as they're sometimes called tech bros, is that they have really weak social science backgrounds in general, right? And that they, they don't seem to, there's, I know a lot of people who kind of work in, in the fields of technology were, were upset when, uh, if anyone's seen the film Social Dilemma, which focuses a lot on some of the social media platforms, and Tristan Harris was one of the uh, people who came out of technology. And there's a scene where he says, nobody got mad when bicycles came around, and they did. It's actually, that's it, there was like this big issues around gender and mobility. But the point is, is this is this consistent theme with Zuckerberg and other people who just don't know history, philosophy the social sciences and what social studies can offer. So I really, it really is interesting that you all doing this work because I think there's so many, you know, offshoots too of, of where this could go and helping people think about the relationship between the social sciences and humanities and computer science. So it's really cool. So I, I think part of what, what Tom was talking about is that the students came up with very unexpected results things that I didn't see them coming up with either, at least not the first time they uh, used this data. And I think part of it is because we're used to students using clean sets of information where they know what the question is, they know what the problem is, they know what the data is, and so does the teacher, and ultimately they probably know what the answer is before they even do the, do the work. In this case, that's not there. And yes, indeed, as they would go through the material, they discovered that there were some real gaps and problems in gathering the data, analyzing the data, and what data they had, what they could actually say with it. Because one of the things, in fact, this, I'm doing the project right now in my class, actually, and one of the things students have been talking about is there's all this missing data, and why is it missing? And then they come to realize it could be hidden, it could be lost, or it could simply never have been gathered. And all of those have different implications. So they come to a critical understanding of the method, of the data, and I think come up with really interesting frameworks to understand this material. Uh, frameworks that sometimes are quite sophisticated. 
Yeah. And so the part of the study, just to also highlight in addition, it was not only about framing computational thinking for the social studies, thinking about how to teach it, but then this third piece of how to assess it. And that's where I believe our study really adds to the literature, both in um, social studies, think, teaching and learning, but also in computational thinking. So what we found is using this heuristic provided a way to develop learner-centered assessments, as well as to begin to measure student outcomes. And, um, you know, as we know, quite a bit of the research literature in the social studies, particularly around technology, has often talked about issues around like engagement or or student confidence, which is great, but what we were really trying to hone in is what students learned as a result of this in the classroom, of using this approach in the classroom. Yeah, if you, again, go through the, the literature on computational thinking, especially coming out of computer science, when they go to assess, it's often, you know, here's a snippet of code, <laughs> you know, <laughs> can you can you identify the recursion that's taking place um, within this code? And so it's like, it's very, you know, inadequate or, you know, or at least orthogonal to social studies purposes. So we're like, gosh, how do we, how do we assess this? And yes, there's some research that just sort of looks at, well, do you understand computational thinking? Are you able to sort of accurately identify what is and is not, you know, a characteristic of computational thinking? And it's like, yeah, that, that's not, that's not the game. That's not the whole game we're playing either that we want to, we want to see what they can do with this and what is sort of the, uh, the, their ability to work with data, reach a conclusion, is it well-founded and well-supported? But then when they made that critical turn, when they started to question, you know, the data sources and the processes, then I was like, okay, this, this, was, this was the thing that I didn't know I needed this whole time. And so now, as I think about how to assess computational thinking, depending on the context, I would really be looking for that critical turn. I'd really be hoping that that would be emerging. And I would say, yes, that's, that's one of the things I wanted to hit. Because if, if somebody exited with blind faith in, in a process, if they exited with, you know, we have the data, therefore we have the solution. We just have to process and analyze the data and be like, man, that's, that, that, that would, that's not a win. <laughs> that, that, uh, you know, that way lies Silicon Valley. So what advice do you have for, for people who want to bring computational thinking into their classroom? What would you tell them to do or just guide them in doing? I would first say, just take a look at what, what you, you're already doing. You know, what, what's already there that is either, you know, something you recognize as, oh, yes, that's a data set. But, but you know, maybe, maybe you've been looking at it. These are primary sources, but wait, I, that's a data set too. Or this is a map. Well, a map is a data set as well, or a collection of maps. Take a look at that and just sort of think about what are ways that you could structure students' investigation of it so that they would be kind of having to think through and draw those conclusions, you know, come up with interpretations themselves. I think that's the entry point. And just stay alert to, you know, data sets that you come across that maybe you're not already using, whether it's something that, you know, you see in Wikipedia or it's in a newspaper article or it's Gapminder or whatever. I actually, the, the, if somebody really was like, I want to do this, I would say go, go where Megan took the uh, the teachers in her in her study which or the, the the opening phase of the study which was take a look at gapminder go to their dollar street database that is very relevant and resonant for social studies you know whether it's you know elementary middle or secondary there's so many places you can go with it and the way that it's presented in frame they don't tell you what to think 
you have to find a process to work with it. So that that is just sort of a, a neat exercise, I think, that somebody who was like desperate to try this but didn't know what to do, that'd be one way to do it. Get up and rolling. So I do have kind of a data set that I think is interesting. It's voting patterns for a protective tariff in the United States. Okay, it sounds a little bit boring, but it's over time. It's over successive time. And ultimately it's <laughs> going to lead to like South Carolina having a big fit. So how can I bring that and give like, do I just hand it to my students and say, hey, look for, examine the data. Here's the voting data. What patterns do you see? And then what rules can you make? And then like then having them kind of look, ask questions based on, well, why are these votes changing? And then they develop questions with it. Is that like, I want to do this. This sounds kind of fun because I usually do this in a different way, but this sounds much better. Well, yes. So what you're doing is you're saying, let's take a look at this. You know, it's, it's a big, you know, hairy issue, but let's look at this data set because it's the abstracted representation. I'm just looking at, you know, voting patterns, right? I'm not looking at all of the, the journalism or lobbying or whatever, you know, so, so I'm just looking at this slice right here. And then you, you decompose it, you break it down. Let, let's look at this time period and this time period and this time period, you know, like, like you don't try to just digest the whole thing at once, but you decompose it, work it through a piece at a time, look for, you know, what seems to be the main tendency here leading up to, what is it? 1832. 1836? Yeah. Okay. All right. Thereabouts. Okay. So 1828, anyway, that, I think is the bad one, but. Okay. All right. Good enough. I'm close. Uh, so. No, you're the, definitely. So, you, you, you know, let's look before that in, in like, you know, the early 18, like 18 aughts versus 18 teens or whatever. Like, you know, you break it down, look at the pattern. How is it changing? Why might that be? And then, you know, you see a big spike in behavior here, and then you see this event and, you know, does this recur over other time periods? So yeah, the, the, the moves that you're thinking about are the kinds of things that, that you would pull out of computational thinking that let's, under, let's apply and understand abstraction. Let's apply and understand decomposition, pattern recognition, generalizing off of that, you know, sort of testing your hypothesis, you know, cycling back through that that's all good and appropriate and, and hopefully feels very natural to what you're already doing. It's just a, a little bit more open-ended and a little bit more, let's understand the data structure before we jump into the history. It's because the usual the, the usual impulse is probably like, you know, hey, it's a history class, it's, it's narrative. I, I, you know, even if I introduce data, I'm, I'm moving on to the next chapter in the narrative. This is more like, mm -hmm. no, hang back, hang back, you know, like understand the data, you know, absorb that, digest it a little bit more, play with it a little bit more, see where students go with it before you kind of get back to, okay, here's my frame narrative. And one of the side benefits of using data like this, especially these days, is that by approaching it sideways through data, they don't have their natural barriers up for understanding the material. They don't have a vested interest in data. So they're not, they don't already have their conclusion based on a bias before they look at it. So they're looking at something quite fresh and therefore the patterns they see are the patterns they actually see and not those that were imposed by external forces if that makes sense that you normally get with a you know a narrative they already know who the hero is and who the villain is in this case that's not clear or they can open up the textbook and say well i, I know i looked ahead at the next you know section of the chapter and i know this is where we're going so let's just go there and be like no you put them into this state of uncertainty <laughs> when they're like working with the data 
and it sort of causes them to really engage, especially if you can scaffold it and support it, you know, with visualization tools, let's say. But yeah, what Robert was saying that it, it kind of eliminates the, the usual tricks of um, anticipating what comes next or, you know, I took a quick look at the Wikipedia article. And I know what this is about. So, you know, I'll just tell the teacher what he wants to hear. The other thing I'd want to say is that if you were interested in getting students to understand, not like deep historiography, but just understands that, you know, the history is a construct and it changes over time, that when students sit with this style of, you know, let's work through some data, and, and we've done this before with primary sources, but this, this I feel like it is a little bit easier for teachers to authentically do, because a lot of what we do with primary sources is actually kind of leading students around by the nose because there's so much context that they don't know. But if you've got the right data set and you find a good way to kind of frame it and give them tools to work with, they have a chance to kind of mess with it and be like, oh, I can see how interpretations arise. Oh, and I can see how once you once you get a fresh data set or you come back and say, well, guess what? The data set I gave you was partial. Here's more around it. And they can be like, man, I can see how the interpretation changes. So that, that idea of interpretation, interpretations being contingent upon data sets or frames or lenses, at least for me, it's felt a lot more natural through this process than it has through you know, something that's intense with primary sources or uh, the work that Megan and I did on digital documentaries. Like I was always kind of hoping that there would be a big sort of historic, historical thinking, historiographic you know, outcome from that. And I'm thinking like, huh, maybe in this space where they don't know the right answers, as, as Robert is saying. Maybe that more naturally gets there because at least his students for sure got there in terms of realizing the limitations of, of algorithms. Thank you so much, Megan Manfred, Tom Hammond, and Robert Coven for, for chatting with us today. We definitely appreciate the fact that you're hanging out with us. And so I think a lot of people are going to want to keep engaging with all y'all's work. So where can they find your work online? Definitely check out the notes for this episode, and then you can find me at my university website. So in the show notes, there should be some references to other articles that we've written. For example, uh, one of the first things that I, where I started putting this on paper was a practitioner piece for social ed that kind of walks through a couple of examples. That, that might be a good place to start. And I have a very, very poorly curated page hosted at, at uh, Lehigh where I occasionally post like, oh, here's, here's an idea and some materials for, you know, elementary level lesson on urban parks and, and waterways. Like there's, there's certain patterns that you get at least, you know, east of the Mississippi with that. Or here's a, a spreadsheet and a, and a GIS map that kind of plays with looking at the origins of the names of the 50 states that... On the East Coast, there are a lot of exonyms that point back to Europe versus, you know, when, once you start getting inland, they shift to endonyms, things referencing Native American terms. So there, there is a university page there, but, but otherwise just email us. And email certainly works for, for me as well. I think it'll be in the show notes. Yeah, we'll make sure to get all of those sites and emails in the show notes. So if anyone has further questions, they can follow up. And thanks again for joining us. We certainly hope to continue the discussion online. At the Visions of Education podcast, we're all about sharing the learning. If you're doing something fun or creative in education, or you just want to chat, and I get it, we're here for you. Hit us up on Visions of Ed. We're on Twitter, at Visions of Ed. And if you haven't already, subscribe to Visions of Education on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, and anywhere you want us to be. And we would love for you to write us a five-star review. It is a form of data 
that we really Ooh, appreciate. Thank you. I do appreciate that. And so we don't we don't want any of that data, oh. you know, lower than five stars, just five star data. That's how we'd like to look at it. And we would like to also thank Zach Seitz of Wiley High School and the University of North Texas for his editing skills. You can Zach find Seitz. me on Twitter. I'm at Dan Kretka. <laughs> and I'm at 4250. Until next time, this is the Visions of Education podcast. Signing off.